I think if I just stood here and didn't say anything, you guys would just continue in fellowship all morning. And I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. So I'll tell you what, I'll do the sermon real quick and then you can go back to fellowship, okay? Uh, it was funny because, well, maybe not funny. My mom called me yesterday uh, afternoon and she said, what are you doing working on your sermon? And I said, well, <laughs> actually, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm getting ready to start right now. And she said, uh, she said, what, did they give you all the holidays? Was that intentional? And I said, well, I guess up until that time, I hadn't considered this being a holiday weekend. But it, uh, it was kind of interesting because the theme of the message that I'd chosen on was, uh, as you'll see, was, was obviously right in line with that. So uh, kind of interesting, but and kind of funny, kind of not. But anyway, we'll get started this morning. Uh, tomorrow in this country, we've set aside a holiday that honors our fallen servicemen and women. We remember them as giving all that they had as their sacrifice allows us the freedoms we enjoy and far too often take for granted each and every day. And as believers, we thank God for each and every one of them and pray they rest in perfect peace. I don't take it lightly when I make the illustration that I'm going to make this morning. You see, while we're all too aware of physical conflicts that have littered our history as a country, Unfortunately, there's a battle that has been raging for as long as man can remember. It's a battle fought each and every day. And unfortunately, it's a battle that some don't even recognize they're participating in. It's a spiritual battle. And it's more dangerous than any physical conflict we've seen throughout the entire history of this planet. Man-made conflict measures warfare, success, or failure in terms of resources gained or lost land, weaponry, even life itself. Spiritual warfare is measured by the saving or losing of the very soul itself. This morning, we're going to explore the Apostle Paul's direction for the spiritual warfare that encompasses our daily lives to put on the whole armor of God. The epistle to the Ephesians is regarded by some as the most profound and influential letter ever penned second only to the book of Romans in its theological and practical scope. This wonderful letter is one of the Apostle Paul's prison epistles and isn't designated for the church in Ephesus specifically, but rather it is thought that this would have been passed around to the churches in the local region. It doesn't contain any specific exhortations or personal greetings, And it is addressed in Ephesians 1.1 to the saints and faithful in Jesus Christ as the earliest manuscripts omit the phrase in Ephesus. It is surmised that since Ephesus was the leading city in the region, coupled with Paul's previous personal ministry in Ephesus, this may have led to the scribes assigning this epistle specifically to the church in Ephesus. But regardless of its initial recipient, The epistle provides the reader a wealth of information with the first three chapters focusing on doctrine, our riches in Christ, our spiritual possessions in Christ, our spiritual position in Christ. And the last three focus on our duty, our responsibilities in Christ. These include a call to walk in unity, in purity, in harmony, and lastly, and our focus today, in victory. 
Our scripture passage today is from Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of, the, of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I actually read through verse 20 if you're paying attention. Paul concludes the letter to the church in Ephesus with the term finally. In using this term, he's bringing an emphasis to the entirety of the themes conveyed within the letter, which include the riches of God's grace, the blessings we have through Christ, the need for unity and using gifts to serve, and remembering that we have been created for good works. His instruction is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This first instruction is a call for preparation for the Christian. Before anything else, we must be strong in the Lord. My study commentary likened a lack of preparation to the weak or frail soldier. And no matter the armor, even the very best armor, is wasted if the soldier isn't strong enough to stand. Once prepared, then, we can put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The emphasis here is in the whole armor of God in its entirety, as God provides us everything we could ever need to stand against Satan and his plans of destruction for us. Through the whole armor of God, we're more than adequately equipped to handle what may come our way by standing on the power of God. Continuing on with verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all that and having done all to stand. Interesting to note this morning that Paul is not calling us to battle. He isn't imploring that the believer enter into a state of battle. Paul is stating as a matter of fact that we're in a spiritual battle, period. Let me say again, we are in a spiritual battle. A quick, a quick look at news headlines will confirm it. A discussion with people in our daily lives will confirm it. 
a policy at your work will confirm it. The worldly stances of the organized church will confirm it. We are in a spiritual battle. Please don't be ignorant to that fact this morning. Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This listing of the opponents in this manner asserts that they are numerous in number and in various status. The illustration is that the spiritual war follows an organized strategy that, straighten, that, that Satan, as military general, has a host of soldiers at various ranks in which to battle. But remember, the goal is all the same, to knock the Christian from their place of standing. We see this concept uh, of, of principalities and powers throughout the New Testament. Romans 8.38 tells us that principalities cannot keep us from God's love. Therefore, there is a limit to their power. Ephesians 1.20-21 tells us Jesus is enthroned in heaven far above the principalities and powers. Colossians 1.16 tells us that Jesus created principalities and powers. And Colossians 2. 10 tells us that Jesus is the head over all principalities and power. Therefore, Jesus is not the opposite of Satan or principalities. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 tells us that the church makes known the wisdom of God to principalities and powers. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 tells us that principalities and powers have an end. And one day their purpose will be fulfilled and God will no longer let them work. Therefore, God has a purpose in allowing their work. And Colossians 2.15 tells us Jesus disarmed principalities and powers at the cross. Therefore, our victory is rooted in what Jesus did, not in what we do. It isn't that there is no doing on our part, but our doing is the appropriation and application of what Jesus has already done. Paul tells us then in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Paul again reiterates the need for the whole armor of God. It is not in our place to pick and choose. It is all required through the strength of God to stand against the attacks of spiritual enemies. God has given his people a call, a mission, a course to fulfill, and Satan will do his best to stop it. When he attacks and intimidates, we are to stand. It is plain that this is Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 6.11 and 6.13. We do the Lord's work and stand against every hint of spiritual opposition. The commentary used for this morning's message goes further in saying that God gives the Christian a glorious standing to maintain by faith in spiritual warfare. For we stand in grace. Romans 5.2. We stand in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.1. We stand in courage and strength. 1 Corinthians 16.13. We stand in faith. 2 Corinthians 1.24. We stand in Christian liberty. Galatians 5.1. We stand in Christian unity. Philippians 1.27. We stand in the Lord. Philippians 4.1. We should stand perfect and complete in the will of God. 
Colossians 4.12. All in all, there's a lot indicated by that one word, stand. Firstly, and most importantly, it means we are going to be attacked. But it means that we must not be frightened. It means that we do not droop or slouch. We are not uncertain or half-hearted in the fight. And no self-pity is allowed. It means that we are at our position and we are alert. It means that we do not even give a thought to retreat. Paul will go on in detail. The individual pieces of the armor of God. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Interestingly enough, Paul, being in a Roman prison at the time of this writing, uses not only the imagery of the Roman soldier's armor, but also lists it in the order in which it would have been applied, in which they would have put it on. The belt of truth. Victory starts with the truth. The belt was placed on first as it served as a foundation for his armor, holding both the breastplate and the sword. It also gathered the garments under the armor, holding them in place and allowing freedom of movement necessary in battle. John tells us in uh, John eight forty four tells us that Satan is the father of lies and therefore cannot stand against the truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The, bless, the, <laughs> the breastplate guarded the heart, the life of the soldier. Similarly, righteousness protects the spiritual life of the Christian. Remember, this is not our own earned righteousness, not a feeling of righteousness, but a righteousness received by faith in Jesus. It gives us a general sense of confidence and awareness of our standing and position. It is not an emotion or a feeling or an experience. Paul moves on to the feet protected by preparation of the gospel of peace. The imagery here is of the soldiers heavily armed shoes or sandals. The word preparation means a prepared foundation. The gospels provide solid footing for everything that we do. Historian Josephus described these shoes as thickly studded with sharp nails so as to ensure good grip. And history tells us that the military successes of both Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were due in large measure to their armies being well shod and thus able to undertake long marches at incredible speed through rough terrain. Continuing on in verse 16, we see the phrase above all. And not to be confused, this is, this is not to suggest that the following three pieces of armor take any higher priority than the first three, but rather should be considered as stating in addition to the already mentioned armor. Here we see the shield of faith. This piece of armor described here by Paul isn't the small round shield of the early Roman soldiers, but rather the oblong full body shield. Uh, called a, a, a scotum, scutum, I don't know. These, these shields 
in, in researching it, these shields weighed around 22 pounds and were, full, were constructed of three sheets of wood glued together and then covered in leather or canvas. Thus the front of the shield could be dipped in water to extinguish these fiery darts of the enemy. In ancient warfare, these darts were launched in great quantities at the beginning of battle from all sides. Even if the darts did not penetrate, they served to cause confusion and in certain instances caused the victim to focus on extinguishing his shield, causing him to lower and opening him himself to additional attacks. While Satan uses fiery darts of thoughts, fears, feelings, imagination, and lies, the shield of faith deflects and, is, and extinguishes them. The next piece of equipment is the helmet of salvation. In the ancient world, the helmet would have been some form of leather cap studded with metal for extra strength. Then, like now, the goal is for it to provide protection for the brain. The primary battlefield in the spiritual warfare is the Christian mind. The helmet of salvation protects us against discouragement, against the desire to give up, giving us hope not only in knowing that we are saved, but that we will be saved. It is the assurance that God will triumph. One of Satan's most effective weapons against us is discouragement. But when we are properly equipped with the helmet of salvation, it is hard to stay discouraged. The last item of the armor is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And of the six pieces of the Christian armor Paul has illustrated for us, the sword is the only offensive weapon. The idea is that the Spirit is providing a sword, the Word of God. There are two Greek words commonly translated into the English word for word. The first being logos, which describes the Bible as a whole. And the second being rhema, which is used in this scripture and refers to a particular saying of God that has special application for a given situation. The Bible as a whole is an armory from which to select, from which, to select which sword for each specific battle. Jesus illustrated the use of the rhema of God in his victory over Satan in the wilderness depicted in Matthew 4. So in order to properly use the sword provided us, we have to be confident in the inspiration of the scripture. That the sword came from the spirit and also with a sense of dependency that not only does the spirit give us the scriptures, but he makes them alive to us and equips us with the right sword at the right time. I think of Brother John's illustration last week of maybe saying something that in answer to a question in a Bible study or an illustration given that he didn't know the answer to going into, right? And it can only be attributed to the Holy Spirit providing his, his thought processes, his, uh, his words, his answers. Paul finishes this passage uh, in verses 18 through 20. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me and that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
the idea is of all kinds of prayer or prayer upon prayer. That we should use every kind of prayer we can think of. Group prayer, individual prayer, silent prayer, shouting prayer, walking prayer, kneeling prayer, eloquent prayer, groaning prayer, constant prayer, fervent prayer. Just pray. We can say that this is through prayer that spiritual strength and the armor of God go to work. In theory, the prayerless Christian can be strong and wearing all the armor, but never accomplish anything because he fails to go into battle through prayer. Furthermore, in a study of of Old Testament wars, we see that when the armies of Israel fought in their own strength, they always lost. But when they cast themselves upon God's mercy, victory always followed. Paul tells us that we can pray for all the saints. That is, we can battle spiritually not only on our own behalf, but on behalf of our Christian brothers and sisters. And Paul goes on to request the audience to pray for him, to battle with him in his current situation. And what does Paul request? That he be released? No. For an improvement in his current state? No. For his own health and well-being? No. His request is that he is emboldened in his ambassadorship of the gospel. Paul's words reflect his own daily application of the whole armor of God and serves as his example for each of us. It is said that Napoleon Bonaparte, in his attempt to conquer all the kingdoms of the known world, had spread out a map on a table and pointed to a specific place and said to his lieutenants, Sirs, if it weren't for that red spot, I could conquer the world. The spot to which he pointed was the British Isles, the very nation that met Napoleon in Waterloo in Belgium and defeated him in league with the group of nations. In like manner, there's no doubt when Satan talks about when Satan talks to his minions about conquering the world, he says the same thing about the red hilltop of Calvary where Christ's blood was spilled. If it it were not for that red spot, I could rule the world. That red spot is what makes a difference in our spiritual battle. We do not need to live in fear of the devil, but we need to enter only the spiritual battle to which we have been called, aware of its reality and and its subtlety, and armed with the truth that the ultimate victory against Satan has already been achieved. My hope in today's message was that you'd find hope and strength. That even as we face spiritual battles each and every day, we have the confidence that the war is already won. We are victorious through the blood of Jesus and all he has done for us. Stay vigilant in this battle. But never forget the outcome is already accomplished. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your time to be in fellowship with one another and most importantly with you. We thank you for all you have done for us and all you continue to do for us, Lord. For the victory purchased through your son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross. And we thank you for equipping us for battle each and every day. 
Thank you, Lord, for those brave men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice in service of our country. We pray you be with us this week and give us strength to put on the whole armor of God each day. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.